thekitlocker.com club series podcast. podcast. Talking everything grassroots. Welcome to another episode of the kitlocker.com club series podcast. This episode's a little bit different this week. Um, it's a little bit more on the generic side, which should be applicable to most sports. Um, I'm Ole, the host, as you may know by now. I've got Ben Dixon with me, co-host, new business development manager at Kitlocker. And then we're joined today by Mayor. And as always, I'll let Mayor explain his background. Brilliant. Thanks for that, Ollie. So my name is Mayor Anchoras and uh, I'm a um, academic and a nutrition consultant um, based up at Shefford Harm University. So my background is um, I actually studied sports science at university uh, and over three years I did sport and exercise science where I studied all the various disciplines around nutrition, strength and conditioning, physiology and biomechanics. And then eventually I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do so I stayed on and I did a master's in physiology and nutrition at Sheffield Harm University as well. Um, later on qualified as a as a strength and conditioning coach so that's how I started my career and very quickly I realized that I was doing a lot of nutrition work alongside my strength and conditioning so I went back and did a diploma uh, the International Olympic Committee ran a diploma in sports nutrition so I did that and then um, been working as a performance nutrition consultant advising professional athletes elite athletes ever since and then I combined that role with uh, my university role which is I do a bit of teaching on the on the sports science uh, degree programs and I also do a lot of research around what nutritional strategies can athletes um, you know do to improve their performance improve their recovery what supplements are more effective which diets are better for performance and recovery um, so I kind of split my time now between university and working with athletes and just for the um, just for the benefit of listeners, you're I think you you might be underselling yourself a little bit, Mayo, in terms of like what your pedigree is. Am I right in thinking that you've worked with a couple of Premier League clubs in the past as well? Yeah, so I've worked with quite a few Premier League clubs. So um, interestingly, my career didn't start out in football; it actually started out in uh, the English Institute of Sport. So I used to provide um, nutrition support to Olympic athletes uh, across a range of different sports. And it wasn't really until sort of mid-2000s when I first got my um, experience in, in professional football. So uh, I started out my career at Sheffield Wednesday Academy when I was a student, did a bit of work up there, um, and then worked with Sheffield United Football Club first team when they got promoted to the Premier League when Neil Warnock was the manager. So this is going back quite a long time. Um, and then I've had various different clubs. So, you know, did a bit of consultancy at Doncaster, Bolton Wanderers when they're in the Premier League. Um, you know, I've done a, a work with a lot of individual Premier League players um, and, you know, recently been working with uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers Football Club. Before I get super rigid and start talking about specific topics that I've got written down, um, I think this is probably quite an interesting thing for listeners is, What's changed then? Because Sheffield United, when they got promoted to Premier League way back when, I remember get, I remember sitting on the cop when Sheffield United got relegated, actually, which is not ideal, bringing back some bad, bad memories. But what's changed from nutrition then to, you know, it's like what you're doing now with Wolves? What's like been the biggest progression, I suppose? Yeah, good question. I think 
back in the day, so we're going back sort of 15, 20 years, I think nutrition, sports nutrition, wasn't really established as a, as a discipline where people had jobs. So back in the day, you know, the general fitness coach, you know, might have dabbled in a bit of nutrition and we didn't really know what we know now. So the science has really evolved and we know a lot more about what you eat and what you drink and when you eat and when you drink and how much of it you have can have dramatic impacts across um, how you adapt, how you perform, how you recover. And it's the one thing that we know can have dramatic effects on, on, on your performance. Um, and I think back in the day, because we didn't know too much about it, people used to engage in probably a lot of word of mouth type strategies, you know, where you have steak for breakfast and, um, you know, people probably really had loads of pasta because they thought, yeah, you know, pasta gives you energy, so I need lots of it. Whereas I think we now realise that we're all different and the positions that we have on the pitch, they have different roles. So for example, a centre back doesn't cover as much high intensity distance, whereas your wingers and your box to box midfielders might have to be quicker and they burn a lot more energy. So the way they eat has to be very different. So because that science has evolved and because we now have practitioners whose full time job is to work with nutrition um, you know, we have chefs that know more about it. So everything's weighed to some, some degree, everything's um, measured, everything, you know, is scientific. And it's like anything, isn't it? As your knowledge evolves and the more you know about something, the better you can implement it in the real world. And I think that's the real change is that we never used to pay that much attention to nutrition. So I think back in the day when you're talking about when Neil Warnock was a manager and Sheffield United were in the Premier League, they probably used to have loads of sports drinks and the odd protein shakes. Whereas now, a lot of the guys will have an individualised plan. They'll get blood taken out of pre-season. Their vitamins, minerals will be bespoke based on their blood work. Um, you know, they'll have heart rates, energy expenditures, how much distance they cover in training, all this data that didn't exist back then. And that can then be used to bespoke nutritional recommendations. So, you know, one guy might be in 2,500 calories a day, whereas another guy might be in 3,000 calories because they perform at different levels and one burns more energy, one burns less energy. So you then have an individualized plan. Do you think as well, mate, with the development of... I've come from a sports performance background um, pre my position now, so I dare say I know a little bit. But with the development of such sports like CrossFit, the, the whole development of clean eating, paleo, and all these kind of protein powders that are starting to come in, and businesses that are developing to the, the public eye, back in the day it used to be the sports drinks, it used to be Lucasade. It used to be one brand only. And now you can go to Tesco's and they've got a variety of different brands out on, on sale. The, the top level performance where you're at, what you see when you walk into your local supermarkets, Tesco's, for example, that's available for youth sport, do you think that's the right kind of product that should be on sale for your, your, um, your dietary requirements? Not necessarily the, the whole what you eat day in, day out, but the additionals. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think first thing I think a lot of listeners might want to know is 
people are very quick to jump on the bandwagon of taking supplements and loads of other products that are out there. But what, what people don't realize is that we use very much a food first approach. So if you eat proper whole foods, so I'm talking about things like, you know, brown rice and wholemeal pasta, things like quinoa, good quality sources of protein, like, you know, salmon and chicken and lots of fruits and vegetables and smoothies and, if your general diet is quite clean, and what I mean by clean is avoiding like processed foods, and you know you're you're making these foods, and you, you know you know exactly what is in your on your plate when you're eating it. Then nine times out of ten, you've you've done sort of 75, 80% of what you need to do, and then the rest of the supplements like the protein powders and the energy drinks and the energy gels and things like your caffeine products and your pre-workouts and they're all just the icing on the cake. If your general diet is really poor, you could take as many energy drinks and protein drinks as you want. Your performance is ultimately going to suffer. You know, you're only making up some deficits. And it's like that across the continuum. So it doesn't matter whether you're at grassroots and, and beginner level or whether you're at that top end. You know, that food first approach is consistent across that whole spectrum. You know, so making sure that you eat clean, making sure that, you know, you know exactly what you're eating is fresh. You know, there's plenty of, of vegetables, fruits, it's not processed, you know, you're not buying um, meals with, you know, that are cooked for you. And my general rule of thumb is, um, you know, if you can't cook it from scratch or you're not making it yourself with fresh, clean ingredients, then chances are it's probably not going to be good for you. I like that. I like that. Eat your greens, kids. <laughs> yeah. Eat yeah. Love it. Um, so... May I say that someone, you know, what you just explained there about it being about 80% of, you know, you're doing the right thing by eating well. What kind of effect on performance does that have? Even if we're talking at like a grassroots level on a competition day or even on a training day as an example, say someone's diet's not the best, and you, you know, they're compared to someone that eats really, really clean. What kind of impact is that going to have like between the two, say in a one hour, 90 minute session? Think about it this way, right? So let's say you have two individuals and you've got one person who's eating junk food. They're not eating particularly well. Um, they don't hydrate very well. And they go and they train and they, and they compete in games. And you've got another person that hydrates well, eats really clean, um, you know, has good breakfast, lunches, dinners, lots of fruits and vegetables. The biggest difference between those two is that every time you train, you, you cause muscle damage. So whenever you train, you're causing these micro tears in your muscles, which is a natural process because those micro tears then repair themselves. Then you get bigger and stronger. And that's called the adaptation where your body adapts to that training session and you get better. So it's a bit like, you know, when you haven't done a lot of exercise for, for a long time and then you do some exercise and then your body gets a bit sore, doesn't it? It's called, it's called muscle soreness. And the person that eats really clean will experience less muscle soreness, they will adapt quicker, they will get you know, those, those adaptations, the muscular adaptations, things that are going on in the cell and the body, that happens quicker and it happens better versus the person who's not having those nutrients. Now, if you take, those, take one training session, let's say you train three times a week, three times a week becomes 12 times a month, 12 times a month becomes 
you know, 24 times over two months and then over a hundred sessions in a year, it has this compound effect. So just by changing your diet, you can make dramatic adaptations. So by the end of that year, the guy that's eating clean or the girl that's eating clean is going to be way fitter, way superior to the person who's eating junk food all the time. And I think that's what people forget. It's not one meal. You know, you eat three or four meals a day and then you eat 20 to 25 meals a week and then you're eating hundreds and thousands of meals over time. And each one of those meals counts because they have direct impact on performance. I guess it's just a bit of a, it's an investment, isn't it? Food's an investment into better performance. It is. It's it's the equivalent of, let's say you gave it 60% in a training session and you could have tried harder, but you didn't versus you giving a hundred percent at a training session the person that's going to give 100% of the training session is going to get fitter, aren't they? They're going to get better. And nutrition is the same. You, 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 your body is made up of all these cells that are continually adapting. And you'd never get a car and give it the wrong fuel or not give it enough fuel because it wouldn't get to where you wanted it to go. But your body's the same. So if you're putting poor fuel and the wrong fuel in your body, you're not going to meet those goals that you're looking to meet because you get to halfway and your body will start breaking down. Yeah. Uh, and, and you made me never want to eat a chocolate bar or a pop tart ever again. <laughs> it's about a balance, isn't it? So we're not talking about, you can never drink, you know, Coke, you can never have chocolates and ice creams, you know, of course you can. It's absolutely, you know, all the professional athletes engage in those, you know, we're all human. We love these types of foods, but it's about seeing where they fit. And if you're, if you're very active and you're training all the time, then yeah, you could have them the odd time a few times a week. But if you eat them every single day, then that's the equivalent of putting the wrong fuel in your body and you wouldn't do that. So it's looking at that bigger picture. Yeah. How do you deal? Well, this is assumption coming from uh, the Institute of Sport you did with your teenage athletes that are at that elite level or even alternatively sub-elite level how did you communicate and work with the parents there because that's not just directly related the athletes aren't in control of the diet there are they if they're a 12 13 14 year old athlete is it excuse me did you have to work with the parents a lot of the time did you do it in groups and and what was the response like yeah good good question i think it depends on, on on the age group so I think first and foremost, you have to educate the athlete. It doesn't matter how young they are, because ultimately they're the ones that need to know what to eat, when to eat, how much to eat, and importantly, why. Yeah. So what are you eating, when are you eating it, or why are you eating this way? And then the so what? So if I eat this way, this is what's going to happen. So then you've got the buy-in from the athletes. Then it's the what I call the enablers. So the enablers are the parents the people that are providing the packed lunches for school, schools that are providing the the hot meals, evening meals that you get at home. And then it's communicating that message to the enablers. So for example, if the athlete is educated and they go home after a workout or after a training session and they've got chips and burgers on the table that aren't particularly healthy and pizzas, then they can say to the enablers, look, you know, I don't, I need, 
fuel that's going to help me recover and make me less sore so I can train harder the next day. And then the enablers buy into it and it becomes that holistic. So it's, we're very quick at saying, oh, you know, we need to educate the athletes, but the athletes in the middle, they're the ones that the performers, doesn't matter at what level. And then you've got the coach, you've got the parents, you've got the schools, and all those parties need to be bought into that process so that the, me- the school meals they provide are going to be healthy. Otherwise, you go to school and all you've got is chips and burgers and pizzas and unhealthy yeah. foods. Yeah, it's like... It's not, over there, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like making sure that... And you see this. So, you know, when you see sports colleges and sports schools that... that, that have all these, um, you know, they train several times a week, they compete. If you go to their canteens, they realize that, that nutrition is important. So they'll have loads of healthy salads and quinoa and healthy cereal bars and, you know, the right types of pasta, the right types of chicken and salmon and so on and so forth. Fantastic. That's, yeah. And I think one of the key things I'd like to dispel here as well is that people look at healthy eating as boring. And it's not boring. It's boring if you just boil a broccoli and you put it on a plate, it's boring. But there's loads of ways to jazz it up. You know, it's so, why don't you have a broccoli where, you know, you steam your broccoli, you toast some almonds, and then you might fry it in a bit of soy sauce and some fresh almonds and some sesame seeds. And all of a sudden, you've just made something really boring into something really exciting. You know, the same goes for like a lot of dishes where, you know, being creative by using... Um, you know, a lot of the contemporary cooking methods and recipes and adapting healthy recipes. So an easy one is people love pizza, but we know pizza can be quite unhealthy. But if you took like a tortilla that you normally have as a wrap, and then you just made like a, a, you know, tomato sauce, you made some toppings, a little bit of cheese, and you stuck it in, in the oven, all of a sudden you've got yourself a really healthy thin based pizza. It's still a pizza, but you've adapted it to make it healthy. Yeah, uh, I have that quite often. Well, probably at least once a week from uh, Leaning 15 Tortilla Pizza. Yeah. I think places like that are a really good place to, to look for, for things like that. My girlfriend is constantly on an app that's got plenty of um, recipes on it there, which has been quite enlightening, actually, because I've been eating a much varied diet now, but it's still been, you know, macro-friendly. So that's been, that's ideal. It's, the information's out there, isn't it? It's like when you were saying about how nutrition has changed over 15 years, the accessibility to information around these kind of um, healthier options are out there now. Um, and a lot of them are free. They're not sat behind a paywall. So everybody should be able to do it if they wanted to. And, yeah. and, and you, you're on like adolescence or even not adolescence. We're referring to young adults, like you knowing, improving your skill set, your repertoire of meals. We're weaning my six, to eight, six month old at the moment, and last week she had salmon and potatoes. And I'm just mind blowing that you're thinking like that kind of, not kind of dish, but it's, it's accessible and obviously weaning onto it. So it's, it's such an early age. It's uh, the information's there to be to be followed. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the key things about younger athletes is that when you're you're growing up until the age of 21 especially like young athletes, you've almost got two things. You've got growth and maturation going on. So you need the healthy nutrients, the vitamins, minerals, and the calories for growth and maturation. 
but then you've also got the calories that you're burning for training and competition. And if you don't eat properly, what we tend to find is that if you're not eating properly, then your growth and maturation is affected because all the calories are going to your training or your calories will go to your growth and maturation. You're not going to get the adaptations from the training that you're doing. So that's why it becomes really key to, you know, it's not just, you know, eat healthy. It's you've got two things going on there that you're trying to support. Yeah, definitely. Moving. Ben's already boxed off how you can adapt a better uh, diet for you for your children, which I think is great that you've already boxed that one off for me. Thanks for that. Uh, moving away from kind of like the youth side, and to, I'm hoping that's going to be a fair amount of listeners to this, which are going to be, you know, grassroots players like myself that are, you know, mid-20s, 30, 35 maybe. I read something about Wayne Rooney saying it was, it was disgusting that he had to shovel pasta down his throat at 11 o'clock for a match. It's quite funny when he's, you know, when he was paid, however much he got paid. What kind of effect does pre and post match nutrition have at, at a grassroots level? Like in terms of how much emphasis do you need to put on it and how much should you be putting on it? Yeah, I think these stories are always interesting about, you know, having passed at 11 o'clock. And I think what, you, what he's referring to then is different kickoff times. So typically in professional football, you have kickoff times at midday, one o'clock. Three o'clock, which is your typical kickoff time for, for most games, and then five o'clock, nine o'clock, eight o'clock, and so on. So how you eat will change. So obviously, if your kickoff is at night, then you've got breakfast and lunch and your pre-match. Whereas if your kickoff is at 12, then you only get one meal, which is your breakfast, as an opportunity. So that will make a big difference. So that's what Wayne Rooney was referring to to them but even at grassroots level you're still going to be training several times a week and you might be competing once a week and it's thinking about if you're busy at work and you've got training that day then start thinking about your training earlier on so what are you going to have for breakfast and for lunch that's going to fuel you for that training session and I think that's what people get wrong is that they'll think about the training too late and then they've probably eaten the wrong breakfast or they might have skipped breakfast and had a really quick lunch and then they're lacking some energy during that training session. So it's, you know, think ahead because the energy that you get for the activity is almost never what you eat three hours before. Yeah. It's almost always what you've eaten in the morning or the night before. So it's making sure that you've got, you know, you've got your plan, you know, plan when your training sessions are, plan when your matches are. And then when you know when that occurs in your diary, you can start planning your nutrition accordingly. So for example, if you've got a kickoff at 12 and you're not a massive fan of pasta, then that's fine. You know, three hours before, two hours before, have some porridge or some cereal instead with some banana. It doesn't have to be pasta. And similarly, if you've got a kickoff on, a, on an afternoon on a Saturday, then start thinking about what you're eating on the Friday rather than just a Saturday. So it's that, you know, looking at that preparation. Yeah, and I think you've, um, there's one common denominator there and for people that are maybe not as you know clued upon nutrition is that it's a carbohydrate source that's you know that you need to be emphasizing there so yeah i, I think that makes perfect sense like I'll, I'll play at 10 a.m on a saturday morning um so i'm having to i get up really early and you know have a bagel or cereal or whatever for that reason i don't know why when i play in goal but it you know it's <laughs> you probably practice what you preach don't you i suppose um, I think I think what's important that this this is we want to know as well is is this concept in nutrition that we call we call it periodizing your diet and it's called you know periodize your 
your food. So if you have a rest day where you're not burning any energy, then you probably don't need to have a lot of carbohydrates. There's not a need to have lots of pasta and rice and cereals and bread because these foods provide you with energy. Because you're not burning any energy, withhold some of those foods and eat more fruits and vegetables and proteins and healthy fats. But on the days where you are burning the energy, you put more of those foods in. And then likewise, let's say you played a game on a Saturday or a Sunday, you need to elevate your protein foods because protein helps your body recover. And they don't have to come from protein shakes. You know, if you have a meal that's quite high in protein, then that's absolutely fine. And just, uh, well, actually, Ollie, you lead on to the one. I've got a question on my own, but I'll, uh, I'll bring that in. Yeah, these. Cool. Um, one other thing that I just wanted to mention that I have got written down is there's obviously the big number, 18. When you get to 18 years old, you're obviously people's priorities change and you know like in terms of drinking and going out socializing a lot of grassroots players and i've found myself in similar situations before where i've turned up at a football pitch on a saturday or a sunday morning and you know and someone comes in this the stinking of ale um what what kind of impact does that have say if you've drank like the night before into on on, on your energy in that you know in that compete kind of like 90 minute time frame yeah just give me one second. I've just got someone at the front door. No worries. I'll, I'll be two seconds. No worries. Joys of uh, working from home and people knocking on your front door. Um, <laughs> no worries. No. Yeah, so going back to this question about drinking alcohol the night before, um, think about it this way. When you drink alcohol, alcohol is a diuretic, so it dehydrates you. Um, so if you've had quite a few quite a few alcoholic drinks, your body's going to dehydrate. You know you're going to lose a lot of water. But then alcohol also uses a lot of carbohydrate to process in the liver. So what essentially what you're doing is you're you're fatiguing your body the day before it needs to be rested. So chances are if you've been drinking, you've had a late night you're dehydrated, you're not going to sleep well, and all that has negative consequences for the day of a game, for example. Does that, does that make sense? What you're saying is do not drink the night before. I think maybe having one or two drinks isn't going to hurt, but having four or five mm. is probably not advisable. Save it for after you've played and scored and won. Then maybe, then maybe enjoy yourself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, it it all depends on professional athletes. So let's say go back to Premier League. You play on a Saturday, and you might have to play on a Tuesday. And if that's the case, you want to you only have this short forty-eight hour window to recover, rehydrate, refuel. So you probably wouldn't do anything to compromise that. But if you were playing Saturday to Saturday you now have many more opportunities to recover. So it's, it's that puts it into really nice context, I think. Yeah, definitely. Ben, I know that you're itching to ask a question, so go ahead. I wasn't question. I was just going to give a comment regarding don't turn up and watch a Sunday league uh, game if I was you. Because uh, there's more than four or five uh, alcohol con- drinks being consumed the night before there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. One, uh, one thing, May, that I did want to, obviously I'm just conscious of time. One thing that I think 
has risen to prominence um, in the last few years is obviously, you know, the use of gels and, and half-time aids and that kind of thing. The, I mean, we don't, we don't sell energy gels at work, so I'm, I guess I'm all right in asking this and being completely open and honest. They're not particularly cheap, um, you know, if you go into a supermarket and buy them as a single, as a single gel or bar or whatever. What, rather than like putting a percentage on it, what kind of effect do they have? Should you be keeping your money in your pocket or should be should Tesco be a stop on the way to, you know, game day? Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of people want, you know, want that holy grail answer, don't they, to energy drinks, energy gels. I get asked about caffeine, you know, can I take caffeine before? Can I take some carbohydrate gels at halftime? I think the simple answer here is if you've eaten properly the day before and the day of the game, then nine times out of ten, a lot of these products at grassroots level, they're probably not going to have a major impact. Mm -hmm. I think if you've not eaten particularly well or you feel like you need a bit of an energy boost, then there is good evidence that these energy gels do work. So one of the bits of research um, that's been done is around carbohydrate in the mouth so your mouth has these sensors they can sense carbohydrate and when they can sense carbohydrate it sends signals to the brain and then your brain can work a little bit harder and if you're if you skipped breakfast or you've you've not eaten well that day then that can have even more of a pronounced effect so in those scenarios these these energy drinks and these gels certainly work but then you might have scenarios well let's say your game is on a Sunday at three o'clock and, and it might be 23 degrees. And in those scenarios, you, your sweat rate might be quite high. You might be losing a lot of electrolytes. So in those cases, yeah, completely, these energy drinks are absolutely necessary to, you know, but in most cases, you probably don't need it. But then it's a convenience thing. So let's say you finish a game and then you've got to drive home and you can't get access to a good meal. Well, in those cases, a protein shake and, and a protein bar and all that can be really convenient because you can't access a meal within that golden hour of recovery. Yeah. So I think, yeah, they, they do work, but I think it's not replacing them in, you know, ahead of a good fueling strategy before, during and after. Mm. Yeah. So a lot, of my, a lot of my players I work with in a Premier League level, they're not a fan of energy gels and they'd rather have half a banana you know, and, it, and it's like it, everyone's individual personal preferences, you know, but football game is 90 minutes. And if you're performing at a high level, you're covering a lot of distance and a lot of high intensity distance, then an energy, energy gel at half time probably isn't going to do you any harm. Yeah. And you've also got that added effect of the psychological benefit. If, it's, if you've took one, you've had a good game or you've had a good swim or whatever event or sport you're playing in, something succeeded, you may attribute that back to the energy gel and you wanted to continue that going forward as well yeah which yeah. you can't really stop well that, that mental link that um, association is always going to be there. yeah it's a bit like the way to think about it is if you if you went out and did a 5k you probably wouldn't start downing a load of sports drinks and energy gels during yeah. and before because most people can do a 5k in half an hour or just over or under if you went out and ran 10 miles, you might want to start thinking about energy gels and energy drinks because that, the, longer the, the longer the event and the more high intensity of the event, the more energy you use and therefore the more energy you need to replace. Yep. 
I uh, I go out on my mountain biking when we get I don't know thirty forty k away and you've got to come back. I always uh, I take the one of the SIS gels, but the problem is I I've, I've been taking the ones that you're supposed to mix into five hundred milliliters of water, but I didn't realise that I'm just squeezing it straight in and it's like the sourest. You're supposed to mix it with half a liter of water. Oh wow! It it it, it knocks you out. It's great. Yeah. yeah. Pure sugar. Mayo, just going back to one thing, and I think this is um, something that is something that I definitely don't um, put enough emphasis on. Personally, is when you're talking about nutrition, is the hyd- the hydration side and water. Um, and and you know you're saying about properly hydrating when you wake up and and whatnot how how important is that yeah i think one thing that people don't realize is that we're all very different when it comes to hydration so let's say you take two people and one person can probably lose a lot of electrolytes in their sweat but not a lot of water so your sweat rate might be quite low but you might lose a lot of salt and magnesium and potassium for example And you might have another person that loses a lot of water, so loses a lot of sweat, but doesn't lose a lot of electrolytes. And you can easily measure that. So you might not be able to measure your electrolytes so easily, but you can measure your sweat rate just by weighing yourself before and after doing any exercise. And if you've got a high sweat rate, so for example, if you've gone out and done 30 minute run and then you've lost a kilo, that's a liter of water. That's quite a high sweat rate. So if you've got a high sweat rate, you need to drink more. Um, you know, if you're a salty sweater, because on your clothes, you tend to get these white marks and you get these white marks on your face when your sweat dries. And if that happens, you're a salty sweater. It means you lose lots of electrolytes in your sweat. And in those cases, you might need some electrolyte tablets and some extra electrolytes. But the general rule of thumb is around eight to 10 cups of water a day. Uh, but people always you know, forget that things like teas, coffees, herbal teas, they all count towards your fluid intake. Mm-hmm. So making sure that you get all that balance um, and say if you've got a game and you know it's going to be warm, start thinking about your hydration the night before, not just on the day of. Mm-hmm. No, that's really good, solid advice. Ben, anything you want to add before May needs to run? Just one thing, I think what one thing we've seen to have covered is pre-competition and fueling for pre-competition. Um, I dare say a lot of the more, the, the buzzword over the past 10 years has been more around recovery. Not a buzzword, but it has been more around recovery. Do you have any top tips? And I don't necessarily mean in meals or products or anything, but do you have a time frame uh, as to when you'd suggest post activity to, to get a, a substantial meal in. And if you're driving two or three hours home, what kind of uh, product would you suggest? To, I guess you've covered it, but what product would you suggest to get in? Yeah, great, great question. So think about it in two phases. So your first phase is your three R's, rehydrate, refuel and recover. And the easiest ways to hit all three of those is by taking a a milkshake, for example. So if you had a milkshake, um, you can add some protein to it if if you wanted to. The fluid has got the rehydrate. The milk's got the refuel. The protein might have the the repair, you know, so you've got got those three R's like boxed off. And then most people lose their appetite after high intensity exercise, but then a couple of hours after it comes back. So making sure that you, 
you know, you have a decent meal, um, you know, so if you're on the road and, you know, most people might, might want to stop off at the services and probably have, you know, some burgers and chips or whatever, you know, there are healthier options. You know, you can have a wrap and, and some fruit and, you know, so making sure that you've got that planned. Um, and then the second phase is the following day. So recovery doesn't just stop on the day of because things like muscle damage and muscle soreness peaks like one to two days after. So the following day is just as important. So making sure that you emphasize on a good quality breakfast. And a lot of people tend to skip on protein at breakfast. Yep. So people tend to have either porridge or toast, but actually protein is really important. So making sure that you put some eggs in there um, or, you know, if, if you're in a rush, you might have a protein shake along, along with, with, with whatever, whatever you have, things like adding peanut butter to your toast um you know having things like uh, smoked salmon at breakfast with an avocado on a slice of toast you know that's a really healthy breakfast to have nice thank you very much and it's uh, it's interesting have, have you done a lot of work with dave hember as well with the uh, with the barbell club because i i was in the barbell uh, club a few years ago one of the founding members and we had the nutrition strategy and it was it was that. So I wasn't sure if you've given Dave anything like this in the past and he's just used it. And, and yeah, I've, I've known Dave for a long time. So I'm, I'm sure we've stolen each other's ideas over the past. <laughs> it was interesting. The three R's then just like, whoa, I've heard that before. Yeah. I think that's a perfect soundbite as well for, for people. There's been some fantastic ones in this anyway. So yeah, may I appreciate your time. And uh, the, the knowledge has been pretty overwhelming. So I think we'll be listening back to this ourselves, let alone putting it out there for, for listeners. So, yeah, really Fantastic. appreciate your input. Mayor, just a, one more final one from me. Well, two one, two from me. Ollie, do you want to... Ben, Mayor's got to go. He's, I know. Just, um, Chef Wednesday, did you... You'll also know Nick Ward uh, from UKCA around Sheffield. Was you working with Nick at Wednesday when he was there? What year was that? Uh, I don't. He was the SNC coach under. Oh, I can't think he was under. I think he was under Turner, wasn't it? Well, yeah, I did work with Nick. Yeah. See, Nick was my SNC tutor when I was at Eagles as well, and then I. Yeah. Like, Do you know what? I didn't work with Nick when he was at Wednesday. I worked with him when he joined us at Sheffield Hallam. Right. Yeah. 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 He was living in Dave's apartment. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> it all interlinks. <laughs> Fantastic. Brilliant. Great stuff. Cheers, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, time. man. Really Thanks. appreciate it. Brilliant. See you soon. The Kit Locker.com Club Series Podcast. Podcast. Talking everything grassroots.